Uh, If you do have your Bibles, then turn in them to two places this morning, Matthew 16 and John chapter 2. Matthew 16 and John chapter 2. There's one more Bible in the back there if we've got enough to go around. Let's pray as we get ready to hear from the Lord, and I hope that is what we are ready to do. Father, as, as we do um, whenever we open up this book, we are reminded of your Son and, and the Word that became flesh and how everything in this book points us to Him, to your Son, Jesus Christ. That this book doesn't contain life, but it points us to the one who does. And Father, we don't want to worship this book, but we want to worship the one it points to, your son. So Father, as we open it, we understand that uh, the things that we read are the very breathed word of God. And I pray, Lord, that we have come this morning not as skeptics or as doubters, but as open hearts, ready to hear, ready to learn, willing to um, forsake any wrong understandings that we may have developed or picked up over our years, ready to abandon those things and surrender ourselves wholly and completely to the truth that we discover in these pages. Lord, you are so powerful and so beautiful. And so awesome. And I pray that we would see all of those things on top of your love and your gentleness and your compassion and your grace all in the life of Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd speak to us as we open up your word. Lord, open our eyes to see wondrous things from your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, Uh, by way of introduction, maybe you have noticed, as I have, just observing things and people and life, Uh, it seems that we have been in a culture in a time where uh, we have really been encouraged to share our opinion, to put in our two cents. Maybe some of you watched American Idol or some of the other reality TV shows where you could get on your cell phone and you could call up and you could decide. You could vote that person in or out. You could express your opinion. You could express yourself. Or maybe it's through your Facebook page that you like to react and respond to things going on in the world via your Facebook page. You, you can put it out. You can put, nowadays with the internet, you can tell the world how you feel about an issue. Sometimes that's for better or for worse. There's some opinions out there that are kind of scary. Uh, but we're nevertheless, Facebook, we're encouraged. Blogs, we're encouraged. This is the me generation, the I What I say matters. My opinion is important. And in some ways it is. And some things are just that. They're, they're opinion. There's not a right or a wrong. You know, whether you were like, uh, you know, chocolate chip ice cream or Rocky Road, it's an opinion. It's not neither right or wrong, and you're entitled to your opinion. But we have elevated our opinions, I think, in a lot of ways, and 
And, and this is what is being encouraged in the media and through culture and through computers. And what, what I say matters, what I say, people should care what I think. And here we come to Christmas, celebrating. Some celebrating one thing, some celebrating another. Some not really caring what they're celebrating, just let's open the gifts, get on with it. And if you talk to people, if you ask, you will find that people have all kinds of opinions about who Jesus is, don't they? And when we go doing street evangelism, we go to the downtown mall, and and you talk to people, you find out what those opinions are. And then you ask, well, how do you know that? Where, Where did you come to that opinion? Well, it's just what I think. I don't really have any basis for my opinion. It's just my opinion, and I believe it's right. And in Jesus' day, things were no different. People had their opinions of who Jesus was. And that's sort of where we begin today. Uh, Jesus had been speaking with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, them asking for a sign, and he addressing that, dealing with his disciples as well. And then we come down and we pick up in verse uh, 13 of chapter 16 of, of Matthew. And it says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, mostly a Gentile region, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, don't get hung up with that term, the Son of Man. There's a lot written out there about what that means. Uh, To say you're the son of something means that's where you have originated. Uh, I'm the son of Preston. That's my dad's name. I have his genes in my body. Uh, That's where I originated from him. He's my father. Uh, The Son of Man speaks of Jesus' humanity. It's it's in Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. You see that term used to refer to Ezekiel, I think 96 times or something like that in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, God speaks to him and, and says to him, Son of Man. So it speaks of Jesus' humanity. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And that's a good question. Uh, does Jesus care who people say? I mean, is he looking for, you know, what we do? We say, and, and those of you that know me know I share about this a lot. I'm a recovering people pleaser. And so usually when I'm, wanting, so when I'm fishing for compliments, I'll say, so, what did you think of the sermon? And it's not because, like, I really, like, I know that you're going to tell me, oh, it was great, it was wonderful. And we do it. We fish for compliments, don't we? Because you really know that what you did was good, and so you ask people because you want them to acknowledge that it was good too, so we can kind of get pumped up a little bit. And that's not what Jesus is doing. He's not looking to pump his ego. You know, who do men say that I am? You know, like, tell me how wonderful I am. He, He doesn't care who men say that he is from the standpoint of somehow his ego needing to be fed. He's confident in who he is. He knows exactly who he is. But he asked this question because, number one, people are talking about him. He's created quite a stir, hasn't he? And I can imagine uh, being in, in some of these public places, being down at the market in Caesarea Philippi or in Jerusalem or in Galilee somewhere, and just to listen to people having lunch together and to overhear the conversation about Jesus. Well, I think he's, th- I think he's that, and we'll see who they think he is in just a second. But we know they're talking about him. Jesus is a hot topic. He's front page news. But people are disagreeing about him. So while everybody's talking, nobody's agreeing. Well, so he asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? 
So verse 14 says, they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. I mean, there's four options right there, four opinions. And you can just picture the, the, the men, the, the ladies at the well, the men sitting around the table. Well, I think Jesus is John the Baptist. That's my opinion. You know, because you've heard the way he, he uh, preaches. You've heard the way he calls people to repent. Just like, I think he's John the Baptist. That's who I think he is. He's a good teacher, a powerful preacher. He even challenges the, the government leaders to change their lives as he challenged Herod. I think that, well, no, no, he can't be that. He can't be that. He, he, he doesn't dress right for that. You know, he's got to be Elijah. That's who he's got to be. Well, why do you think he's Elijah? Well, I think he's Elijah because he does miracles. And we've seen the miracles that this guy Jesus does. And, and we know Elijah did miracles. He raised the dead. And he called fire down from heaven. And he also challenged the government at that time or the leadership. Remember under Elijah uh, or over Elijah was Ahab and Jezebel. Some of the worst leaders ever in the nation of Israel. And, and Elijah confronts that. He confronts the idolatry in the nation, the false worship. And so we think that's who he is. No, no, it can't be Elijah. It can't be John the Baptist. I think, I think he's Jeremiah. Jeremiah? Why, why would you say Jeremiah? What, what sense does that make? Well, you see his compassion for people. You see the way he cares for the sheep. He talks about the people of Israel like sheep being lost. And that's like Jeremiah. So I think it's Jeremiah. Or maybe just one of the prophets. Maybe he's just a spokesperson for God. And they were just, can you imagine the, the, the canter around the table as people were talking, as the rumor mill was flowing, and they were all discussing who he was. And you've heard it today. What, what things have you heard? I mean, I've heard that Jesus is just a mythological character. Never really lived at all. He was just kind of a myth that was made up or a fictional, fictional person. Or maybe if he was a real person, he was just a good teacher that people elevated over time, made him more than he really was or is. And then Jesus goes on to ask the disciples. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? What a great Christmas question. Because as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ you have to recognize that we're not all celebrating the same thing. Maybe in this room we are. I don't know. Probably not. But the world is not all celebrating the same Jesus. Some people are celebrating this Jesus who was, according to their religion, uh, a good prophet, a good teacher, had some good things to say, like Confucius or like Buddha, but certainly not God. Or, well, you know, Christmas is just a, you know, it's a holiday. It was never you know, based on St. Nick and didn't really have anything to do with Jesus. And it was the pagan thing. And then the, the church just kind of took it. And so we're not even celebrating it as, as Christ's birthday. It's just a time to exchange presents. We don't even believe Christ existed, you know, or that, that he was anybody of any kind of importance. But the question this morning is, what is it that you're celebrating next Sunday? Who is this Jesus that was born? Was he really born? Did these events really happen? I think you'd be in a minority to say he didn't exist at all. I mean, that would be, there's enough historical information to show that he existed, at least. But this is a good question, isn't it? So who, who do you say that he is, folks? I mean, not in your head, but in your heart. 
Because you know you can come and you can say the right things with your mouth. Well, I, I believe. I believe. I believe in Jesus. And then you know in your heart as you read the scriptures that you may say that you believe in him, but you know that yeah, I struggle with some things about him. I like the teaching, you know, I needed some help in my marriage. And so I came to church to get some information because I believe Jesus had some, he was a wise sage. That's who I believe he was. I'm not, you know, I don't worship him as God or anything. I mean, I don't want to be a uh, radical. You know, we don't, heaven's sake, church, we don't want to be radical, do we? (laughs) He asked this question because we don't want to deal with these questions, do we? We don't want to deal with these issues. When we go evangelizing, we speak to people. And they would rather run and hide under our, the closest bench than to talk to us about who Jesus is. Because we would rather not think, of, don't get in the way of my Christmas. I'm shopping. I've got lights to string. I've got eggnog to drink and to make. And um, don't, don't mess with my mellow feeling here. Don't mess with my, my yuletide caroling have you noticed that but every single person in this room and every single person on the face of this earth whether they like it or not will have to answer this question for themselves loved or hated but never ignored you cannot ignore jesus and my question to you is who do you say that he is this christmas season who is he to you really you will know who he is to you by the way you read the letter that he wrote to you. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's how, when you get an email from someone special, you open it up, oh, look, I got an email. from you get excited about that email. You know, when you get the spam stuff, ah, oh, spam. You know, you, you, you delete that stuff or you get an email from someone you're not looking. But when you get that email from someone that is special or something you've been excited about, oh, man, you can't wait to open it up and read it. And that's one of the ways you'll know who Jesus is to you by the way you read his word, by the way you you come to him. Who do men say that I am? Uh, This, that, the other thing, all these opinions. You know, a lot of people ask me what I think about things. You know, what what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And the more I walk with the Lord, the the older I get, uh, the more I realize what I think doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what I think. The question is, what's true? I had a a person ask me, you know, my opinion about something. They were looking for a fight, really. Well, what do you think about this? And they wanted an argument. And I said, you know what? It doesn't really matter what I think. What matters is what the Lord says. It doesn't matter how I feel about it. It doesn't matter what my opinion is. What matters is the truth. And And again, each passing year... What I'm on is I, I just want to know the truth. I wanted the truth. It doesn't matter what I think. And see, that's where we've elevated ourselves to this godlike status of what we, can, what we say should matter. What we say doesn't really matter. What the Lord says. It's the word of God. My word doesn't endure forever. My word cha- How many of you have changed an opinion somewhere in your life from five years ago? I mean, you thought one thing and you were certain that that was right, but over time you realize maybe you weren't right about that. Yeah, we all have. And that's why I say, you know what, what I think today might change next year. I might go, oh, I was really off base on that. But if I can come to the Word of God, I know I'm solid. And that's that's why the Word of God is so important. I want to know 
I want to know the truth. And so when it comes to Jesus Christ, I want the truth. And I think I've got the truth. The truth is he is fully man and fully God. God with us, Emmanuel. That's who he is. And that's what Peter says. Listen to him. Who do, men, or who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the, a definite pronoun, you are the Christ, not a Christ, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Not the son of the dead God, not the son of the false God. You are the son of the living God. Again, we have that son of term in there, speaking of you are God is sovereign over the world, isn't he? Those of us that have been to Daniel study, we know that about the sovereignty of God, that God reigns over human kingdoms. We've been studying that week after week in the book of Daniel. He is the king of kings, right? Jesus says, Peter says of Jesus, you are the son of the living God. You are the king. In line for the throne. Not only that, you see, a lot of people think when they first get saved that Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. Like Steve Fedden, you're Jesus Christ, and the is his middle name somehow. Uh, Christ is his title. It simply means anointed one. Messiah in, in Hebrew is Mashiach. In Greek, it's Christos. And it means the one who is anointed. When God wanted to uh, use a king, wanted to, to make someone king, he would have a prophet or somebody, a priest, anoint that person. But they would pour oil over the head, and, and there was a whole ceremony they would go through, and he would be the king. He was the anointed one, one specially set apart for a unique work of God, or a unique work under the leadership and the authority of God. And that's what, that's what Peter says, man, you are, you're not, you're not, all those opinions are wrong. Opinions are wonderful, aren't they? But they're wrong sometimes. I mean, Jerry doesn't like uh, mint chip ice cream, Briars. Where's Jerry? But, but he's wrong because that's the best ice cream flavor. I saw, sorry. It's, no. That's the thing about opinions is, is you can have them, but sometimes they're wrong. And maybe, sometime, uh, maybe some of you have come in this morning with just a wrong opinion about who Jesus is. It's your opinion and you'll hold tight to it even if it's wrong. So I'm asking you, maybe this morning you've got to change your opinion about who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one, the one that God has ordained to be the savior of the world, uh, to set us free from our sins. The son of the living God. Now, this is Peter who just in the last section we studied, they couldn't figure out what Jesus meant when he was talking about leaven. They thought he meant bread, and Jesus was speaking about teaching. They had it all confused. And so when Peter says this, I mean, it's like every so often you say something that even startles yourself. Don't you? and I, that happens to me weekly. Wow, where did that come from, you know? What, where did I get that? It happens every so often. Well, Jesus answers and says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon Bar is son of, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, Peter, you didn't, get, you didn't come to that conclusion by sitting around the table talking with a bunch of people who had their opinions. You know, obviously, Peter, God had to reveal that to you because just a, you know, two sentences ago you were confused about bread, and now all of a sudden you're waxing wise on, on who I am. That's, 
revealed to you by God. And for any of you in here this morning that can say Jesus is Lord or that can say Jesus is God in the flesh, not just a good prophet, not just a good teacher, not just a wise sage, but that he is God in the flesh. That's something that uh, that is not something you learn by human reason. You don't go down to read, read the book, books on that, read the paper on that, get that opinion from the news. And you can't reason your relatives into the kingdom. We've tried, haven't we? Lord knows we've tried. We've, showed, we've opened the Bible. We've showed them the facts. We've given them tracts. We've bought Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict more than a carpenter. You know, we've bought these books and we've tried to reason people into the kingdom. Uh, and it's futile unless the Lord reveals it to them. And unless they're willing to respond to what the Lord has revealed. And that's the deal. Because the Pharisees, Jesus had revealed himself to them. But they wouldn't respond. Their hearts were hard. So, Peter, man, blessed. This is a blessing to you. This is Peter's beatitude. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Thank the Lord that he reveals himself to men. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. These passages have caused a lot of mental gymnastics and wrangling, especially if you've grown up in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church makes much of Peter as uh, the Pope, the first Pope, and that all the, the authority in the line of Popes have come from Peter. And a lot of that comes from this passage. Also, if you have seen or told the jokes with, uh, you know, so-and-so dies and they go to heaven and there's Peter at the pearly gates to meet them, right? We've all told those jokes. Or, and this, that comes from this passage with Peter having the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So that's where we get all that, those jokes from with Peter there at the pearly gates. Um, and there's a lot, there are volumes written. So don't expect that, Number one, don't expect me to give you the canned answer, what, what I read on this, because you can read everything on, from soup to nuts on this passage. Uh, but what I can offer you is a well-thought-out, I think, uh, opinion, <laughs> uh, a well-reasoned explanation for what exactly is being said here and why it's being said. And then you'll have to go home and hash it out yourself and decide what you think. So... Just know that as we talk about verse 18, uh, it has been the source of a lot of discrepancy and a lot of differences of opinion. So let's see if we can't discover what's really being said. So he looks at Peter. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter. Now there's a word play going on. Peter's name is is Petros in the Greek. P-E-T-R-O-S, Petros. And it means a small rock or a pebble. And then he says, and on this rock, and in the Greek, which is the original, which is the language that this Bible was originally written in, was Greek, they, the translators write that word Petra, which means a large rock, a significant rock. So there's a little word pun. The problem is Jesus didn't speak Greek, he spoke Aramaic. And in Aramaic, his language, there would have, it, there would have not been uh, two different words, it would have been the same word. So that, that, because what we're trying to discover is who is this rock? That's really the question. 
I mean, is Peter the rock? It, like, like many would say, like maybe the Catholic Church would say, is Peter the rock that the church is built on? Lord, I hope not. Because Peter's a mess. Well, but anyway, that's, that's, we'll get there in a second. So, you are Peter, and on this rock, on, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. So there's a word play that's going on. So the question is, is it Peter? Uh, we know Peter was a significant figure in the church. He was the one that preached at Pentecost, and thousands of people got saved. And he was the one that went to Cornelius' house, the first non-Jew to, uh, to receive the salvation, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, book of Acts chapter 10, I believe. Peter was used mightily by God. But would, would Peter have said he had a, a special place like that? In his own letter, he says that we come to Jesus as to a living stone. We all as living stones being built up into the church, into the, the temple, the spiritual house. So he would have included himself with you and I. And then you read 1 Peter chapter 5 where he speaks of himself as an elder and overseer in the church. He just says, I am a fellow elder. He doesn't say, I'm the elder of elders. I'm the eldest. He doesn't, he doesn't look at himself that way. So evidently he didn't understand this, that he was the Pope uh, in, in his own writings. So someone's got to inform him of that. Yes, you significantly, but I, you are Because you read the sentence, and it looks like it would read that it would be Peter. I mean, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. If you read that on a quick read, you say, well, yeah, it's got to be Peter. It certainly seems to point to him. But I don't think Peter, I don't think Peter got that. I don't think Peter understood that. <clears throat> I think we would run a big danger if the church was built on a person. Because people change. Because Peter is also the one that later on the book of Galatians talks about Paul confronting Peter about his hypocrisy. And he was even, even led Barnabas away with his hypocrisy. So Peter began to have some struggles even, in his, even after the resurrection. Peter wrestled with hypocrisy. And maybe some churches are built on, on Peter's. Hypocritical things, dealing one way here, one way there. No real foundation uh, you know, this is part of the struggle for the church is so many people build their lives, their families, uh, their church experience on a pastor or a person. And when that person falls or fails, they come unglued because they built their church on a, on a Peter. And then things tend to peter out after a while, don't they? <laughs> See, and I can't say it's in my notes because I'm not using notes. That is spontaneous stupidity from your pastor. Some say that what's being spoken of is Peter's confession. That's what the church is built on. His confession that Jesus is the son of the living God. But that would stretch way back. You know, far back up in the conversation. That seems a little bit odd. It would seem a little bit out of context to say that this is the confession. Also, Confessions change, don't they? Right now, Peter's can, he's strong. He's confessing, you're the son of God. You know, you're, we know it. But in a few chapters, he's going to be saying, I never knew the man. I don't know him. Confessions change, don't they? So if the church was built on a confession of a person, 
Confessions change. So we're working our way down to what I think. And I'll tell you why I think it. I think that when Jesus says, on this rock, you're, you're a little rock, Peter. Remember, a few stories ago, we were looking at the feeding of the 5,000. And what was the, the lesson there? You guys aren't sufficient. You can't produce bread. You can't produce truth. You can give it out, but you can't produce it. And I think Jesus is still working on that same lesson. You are a rock. Yes, you're a little rock. But you can't be built on, Peter. Don't forget that. Look, folks, and I look in the mirror when I say this. This church can't, the the church can't be built on you or me or anybody else. This pastor, your pastor, is susceptible to sin and temptation. And if I fall, if something were to happen to me, then you better not give up on Jesus Christ. Because I've seen too many, you know, one of the, the, one of the, Reasons I think the Lord had us plant Calvary Chapel Fluvanna was because we saw a lot of people that were like lost sheep. Something they'd been burned in their church or something had happened over here. And for them, it was all about church. And so they just quit going when they got burned. Or they just stopped being part when, when things didn't go well. And they were like lost sheep. And I really felt God calling us to regather. And be, just like Jesus, he had compassion on them and he sat down and he taught them. And what's happening this morning is you're being taught that no man, that the church can be built on, on no man, not a pastor. And so your vision, your view, Christmas is a good time to remember this, is on Jesus Christ and him alone. Other people offer things and are part of this body. of I am just like you, folks. I am a part of this body of Christ, just trying to hash this all out while I'm alive, uh, just like you are. Doing what God has called me to do, just as you should be doing what God has called you to do. So you're just, you're just a little rock, but on this rock, not, not Peter, not Peter's confession, I think, look over at verse, uh, we have John chapter 2 marked, right? You have John chapter 2 marked? Because I like, this just makes such sense to me. I, I think things should be simple. I think Bible interpretation should be simple. I don't want to get all complicated. And so this, for me, when I, when I learned this, It just made perfect sense, so that's where I'm sticking. It's simple. It makes sense. John chapter 2, look at uh, verse 18. Jesus answered and said to him, what sign, oh, excuse me, so the Jews answered and said to him, Jesus, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, what did they think he was talking about? The context was he's standing there at the temple. So they say, hey, it took 40, some 43 years to, or what does it say there? 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? So they think when he said this temple, he must be speaking of this temple that we're looking at. The, the, the temple in Jerusalem. But what does it say he meant? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. See, it's the same language. He said, destroy this temple. They thought he meant this temple, but he meant this temple. Now, if he had pointed to himself and he had said, destroy this temple, and I will build it, they would have understood. So evidently, he didn't point to himself. He just kind of said it. And I think we have the same thing here in Matthew. Now go back to Matthew. I say to you that you are Peter, and he doesn't say, and on this rock, I will build my church. 
He just says, and on this rock, I will build my church. And I think just as in that John passage, I speak, think he's just simply speaking of himself. Now, all three scriptures, we see God referred to as a rock. And I'm going to read to you uh, something from 2 Samuel that's written by David. This is 2 Samuel. Don't go there. Just listen for a second. Second uh, Samuel chapter 22 David spoke to the Lord the words of this song. So David is, is singing a song or speaking this song that he'd written. On the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust. Who was the rock? The Lord is my rock. Now, this is even more compelling. You go further on in the song. This is uh, first Samuel, excuse me, 2 Samuel 22, uh, 32 says, For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Who's a rock except our God? I'm not a rock. Peter's not a rock. His confession wasn't rock solid. It was right, but it wasn't rock solid. It would change. Who is a rock except God? And so that is why I think that what is clearly being spoken of here, I don't think it's very complicated. I think Jesus is simply speaking of himself. I think it makes perfect sense. And he says, and on this rock, on Jesus himself, I will build my church. We have a church building project going on. We just talked about that. And actually, that's a misnomer. We are building a building that the church can meet in. You see, because the church is not a building. We, we've, it's come to mean that. Uh, in common language, the church isn't some place you go, friends. It's who you are. The church is the first place we see in the New Testament the word church. And it's a, a Greek word that means assembly or congregation or literally called out. Called out. So if we're all in our houses and we hear the trumpet, the trumpet sounds, we know there's going to be a message. Everybody would assemble to hear what was going to be said. There's an assembly. It's a gathering together of a people who are called out for a specific purpose. And so that's what the word church literally means. It's you. You are the church. Those of us that have built our lives on, on the rock, Jesus Christ, we are the church. Now, this is troubling because Jesus says, he, he doesn't look at Peter and say, and on this rock, you will build the church. He says, I'm going to build the church. And that is, oh, I love that verse. You know why? That takes a whole lot of responsibility off of me to build the church. And, and, you know, you've been to churches where the churches are trying to build the church. Oh, my goodness, they work so hard to try to do this and try to do that and try to have programs to do this and, and oh, so much work to build the church. God has made it so easy. He says, I'll build it. You just give yourself to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer, and I'll add to the church. Ha, ah, I like that. I can do that. I don't like a lot of pressure. I'm a low-pressure kind of guy. I don't like to have to, to perform, you know. I don't want to perform. I don't want to have to feel like, you know, am I, doing a good, am I building the church right? I mean, am I doing a good job with this? Is it, is it growing like it should? I don't care. Not my job. And you have to know that too, folks. You have to know in your walk with the Lord what things are your job and what things aren't. Because you're trying to do a lot of things that are God's job. And I thank God that it's His job to build the church, not this church, not a church, but the, there is one church, folks. 
There is one church. And it is his church. And it goes by his name. And he bought it. Paid for it with his blood. And he's building it. That The building that we're talking about, that's, that's a, a, a structure. But this is the church is the assembly. And that's why it's so dangerous in our day and age where people are rejecting. Well, Jesus we, we love, but that church thing, we don't like that. I just want to worship Jesus on the, in a stump in the woods or out in my backyard or in front of the TV and I'll download the sermons and I'll, I'll watch it on the internet. That's not church by definition. By definition, church means assembly. You can't assemble by yourself at home. That's, not, that's called isolation, and Satan loves it. So, again, what you think doesn't really matter. Church means assembling together five people, or 500 people, or 5,000 people. It doesn't matter. It's an assembly of people. It's getting together. You can't be an isolated Christian. It's not possible. It doesn't match. And, and by the way, the church has got a lot of problems, doesn't it? That's our fault, not Jesus' fault. That's, that's our fault, but he loves it anyway. He loves his bride. And we need to defend the church. We need to be defenders rather than tearing down the church. You know, in Ephesians, it tells us that Jesus Christ, although the bride, his bride, uh, he, he's going to present his bride spotless. And we go, how in the world is he going to do that? We've got so much trouble, so many spots and wrinkles and stains on us. His blood washes away all that stuff and makes us clean. And he loves his church. And you should love his church, his people. Don't you think? He says, it's my church. And he's not afraid to own us, folks. We may be afraid to own each other. And we may be embarrassed sometimes when we speak to, well, I went to this church and this happened, that happened. Man, I'm sorry that happened to you, but I love the church. I love my friends and church family. We are the family of God. We are the most, be- most beautiful, uh, forgiven, dysfunctional family on the face of the earth. On this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Uh, Hades speaks of, uh, it was the god of the underworld. Um, this is, some of your translations might say the gates of hell. That, that's not eternal fire uh, lake of fire stuff. This is Hades. It, it literally uh, means death or the grave. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. So what he's saying is the, the gates, it's an odd, it's a, it's a, he's creating a word picture. Gates are the, the part of the city. You can't build a wall around the whole city because no one could get in. You'd have to climb over the wall. That would take you a long time to come home after a day out in the field, right? You have to climb up the wall and climb over. And so they put gates in a wall. And if the gates are strong, this city, those that are in the city, city stay in. Those that are out of the city stay out. It's meant to divide. To keep people in that are in and out that are out. And if a city has strong gates, then it's more secure. Death is what people fear the most. And the gates of death, meaning that death almost being spoken of like a prison, these gates of Hades holding people captive. And this is the cool part, folks. Jesus is stronger than the gates of death. And when he died, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. I don't know whether you believe it or not or what your opinion about is, of that is, but 500 people saw him. 
alive. And he busted open the gates of death and he led all of those that were held captive free. The gates of Hades are not stronger. And here, here we get to the confusing part. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, we'll come to that again. Look over just a chapter or two, two chapters to Matthew eighteen eighteen, And you see where he says right there again, this is Jesus speaking. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So we'll deal with that a little more thoroughly then. But here's what I want to say to you now. He says, I will give you the keys. My son, uh, Jacob, is learning how to drive. And so I have to give him the keys. That doesn't mean it's his car. To drive where he wants and to do with what he wants. It's still my car. Where is he? Remember that. (laughs) But I give him the keys and he gets to operate it under my guidance. And under my care and under my direction. Uh, He's not free to go wherever he wants with it. Even though he's got the keys, I also have a set of keys. They're the same sets of keys. So uh, Peter says, I I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I'd be like, no thanks, don't want them. (laughs) No no responsibility for me. You can keep them. Uh, But nonetheless, Peter is given the keys. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. It almost sounds like Peter is setting the tone for what happens in heaven. Like, Peter, you make the decision here on earth, and whatever you say, that's what we'll do. Oh, boy, that's scary. That's really scary. I'm not sure if you know how scary that is. But that's not what's being said. And again, a lot is written on this, and I'm going to give you something to just consider before we close out the sermon today. Um, In literally translated, it would be whatever is, whatever you bind on earth, will have been bound in heaven. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he said, pray in this manner. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's all these keys are for. Keys just symbolize letting people in or out. I mean, opening or closing a door. And Peter is going to open the door for people. uh, Open the doors of heaven. In other words, people will see what, what heaven is really about, what God is really about, what the kingdom of heaven is about. Remember, the Pharisees had given them all kinds of junk, traditions of men, misinterpretation, and now people are going to know the truth. He's going to open up the truth to them. And whatever is bound, the, the, these terms are Jewish terms. Uh, the rabbis would say uh, when, they wanted, when something was obligatory, when something had to be followed, they would say that this is bound. In other words, uh, This is something we have to do. Or the rabbi might loose you from something. No, you don't really have to do that. And Jesus had just loosed them from all the traditions. They're eating bread on the Sabbath. They're they're picking grain. They're eating with unwashed hands. Jesus had loosed them from all those things. Now check this out. I I like this. So he gives the keys. Whatever you bind on on earth will be bound in heaven. Uh, Look down at verse 20. Well, let's just read a little bit farther. Verse 21 I'm not going to comment on this except as it relates to what we just read. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. And I like this, verse 22. This is beautiful. Then Peter took him aside. You see, he gave him the keys. 
Now Peter says, hey, Jesus, you gave me the keys. We've got to have a talk. See, now that you've put me in charge, I'm going to have to rebuke you. Ooh, and that just makes you like shake in your shoes, doesn't it? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He's rebuking Jesus. You don't do that. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. You see, I'm, I'm, I'm going to loose you from this suffering. I, you've given me the keys. I, I'm going to make sure that what, what is bound in, on earth is bound in heaven and what is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. And he's got it backwards. He thinks that he's making the decision, decisions for heaven instead of heaven making the decisions for him. And so he says, Jesus, I don't want to see you suffer. It's not right. I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen. What is Peter's response? I mean, excuse me, what is Jesus' response? He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, if Jesus calls you Satan, I don't think that's a good thing. I'm not sure. I don't think that's a term of endearment. (laughs) If he was in, in Virginia, Jesus would have said, Get, me, get behind me, Satan, bless your heart. <clears throat> That's how I would read in the Virginia version. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Peter, you can't release me from suffering. You can't loose me from that. You know, we bind. I've been to prayer services where all kinds of stuff is being bound and loosed, and it just comes from an a misunderstanding of what those terms mean and what they're for. And there's this understanding like that if I bind it on earth, then heaven has to respond. And remember, it's the opposite. We can't bind nothing on earth that God already hasn't decided would be bound. Because it's all... Peter, you can bind on earth what has already been bound in heaven. And there, you know, people come to me and and they want to be released from their circumstances. Look, there is something that is binding on us and I can't release you from it and it's love. No matter how many times you come to me or come to a counselor and say, oh, I just don't know if I can love that person. I, you know what? I understand. Yeah, I don't love them. Just, you know what? I, just love the people that are easy to love. You know, that's, I think God would be happy with that. Can I say that? No, I, can't. I don't have the right, the freedom to say that. I can't free you up from your responsibility to love your enemies. You know, I can forgive, but this person, I just can't forgive them. You know what? I understand. Don't forgive them. I, I see where you're coming from, man. Wow. Yeah. I think you're, I, you know I, I loose you from having to forgive that person. No, I can't do that. And you know what else I can't loose you from? I can't, I, I hate to, see, it's hard to watch people suffer, isn't it? But the Bible says that in some ways, suffering is a gift. Philippians chapter 2, I believe, Paul talks about that. For you, it has been given to suffer because our Savior suffered. And we're going to follow in his footsteps. So guess what? As much as we'd like to set each other free from having to suffer, guess what's going to happen? We're going to suffer. There will be suffering. There will be sacrifice whenever we try to love. Look, if we're going to be serious about this thing called Christmas, if we're going to be serious about this thing called Christianity, then we have to recognize that when, when we love, when we put ourselves out there to love sacrificially and unconditionally, you will be hurt. And if you don't like to be hurt, you won't be able to love. It's just the way 
it goes. Mother Teresa said, you love until it hurts, and pretty soon there's no more hurt. There's only love. I think that's brilliant. So binding and loosing, uh, finally he, he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. That's always confusing. Uh, you know, maybe it's reverse psychology. He tells them now, don't tell anybody. And they go, ooh, got to tell people. You know, that's how it goes, right? I got a secret. A secret is that thing you tell only one person at a time. I don't think that that, I don't think it's reverse psychology. I think the problem is, that you know, everybody's talking, well, who is Jesus, who is he, who is he? He hasn't given yet the definitive proof. What did he say the sign was going to be? The sign of the prophet Jonah. He's going to die, be buried in the earth three days, and rise again. That hasn't happened yet. So I think people can still argue and discuss the opinions about who he is. And so he tells them, look, don't tell people. They're just going to argue with you. But... There will be a time, and our commission today, folks, is not to don't tell anybody. Our commission is go and tell everybody. Amen? Amen. So as we close up, Phil uh, is going to come forward. And uh, I think I want to take you all back to who, who do you say that I am? What do you say in your heart? Let's pray. Father, I just pray as we close out with a song that uh, that any ambiguity in our own hearts, Lord, any indecision in our own parts, anyone in here this morning who has been double-minded and oh, on the fence about you, Lord, I pray that this morning, uh, during this very time, that you would reveal it to them, Lord that you are the Christ. The only mediator between God and man. And I pray that we would be able to settle this matter in our lives and our families, Lord, that, that as we confess that this morning, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that we would be bold enough to build our families on you, And to build our lives on you. And recognize, Lord, that in all things, you, and not a pope, or a pastor, or a prophet, but you alone have the preeminence, Lord. And that while people may be divided, that you are never divided. That Peter didn't die for our sins, that Paul didn't die for our sins, that Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad didn't die for our sins. And those men don't love us like you love us, Lord. And I just pray that you would continue your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.